Faith through the saving of one's soul is the beginning of the Christian life, and faith characterizes the life of the Christian until they get to heaven. Please be seated. Jess Cruz attended summer camp at the age of 12, and she was told that Jesus died for her sins and if she prayed a certain prayer that she would go to heaven and not hell. So you better believe she prayed that prayer, but nothing changed. No conviction of sin, the fear of wondering if she prayed that prayer sincerely enough and prayed that prayer rightly plagued her afterwards. At the age of 14, she was baptized because someone told her, you need to be baptized. Jess recounted, for years, my life spiraled in a pattern of sin, followed by horror. I'm going to hell now. Then praying for salvation again, I always felt hopeless. I severely doubted God's love for me and did not love him or other people. She believed she was a Christian because she prayed that prayer. Jess graduated from college. She married Joel who was studying to be in ministry. They had a family. And in 2008, they moved to Baltimore to begin a new church plant. In the year 2010, after seven years of being the wife of a pastor, after many years of faking to be a Christian, she realized she was unconverted. Jess's story is not unusual, sadly. Replace her name with another name. Instead of pastor's wife, put pastor, put ruling elder, put deacon, put any number of church members. Instead of the prayer, put the invitation to come forward to the altar and do business with God. So the question is not to cause us all to question our faith. If you read Jonathan Edwards' religious affections, you might conclude that Edwards didn't think anyone was a Christian. The standard was so high. But I do think it's appropriate for us to analyze on what we are trusting Are we relying on the wrong thing or things for our salvation? And in effect, are we faking living the Christian life? What does it mean to believe to the saving 
of one's soul? We will endeavor to answer these questions today as we look at this second part of conversion, faith, saving faith. And we'll be looking at three things, the meaning of faith, the response of faith, and the life of faith. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that we can come before you this hour. We pray that you might show us what it means to believe unto salvation, unto the saving of one's soul. Father, for those of us who are converted, strengthen our faith, I pray. And for those who are yet outside the kingdom of God, would you be so merciful and kind and gracious to work and to impart that new life in regeneration and enable that response of repentance and faith. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. First, the meaning of faith. So if you'll look on page 9 of your bulletin, you'll see a chart. And that chart is... is attempt, as feeble as it may be, to depict the logical order of what we know as the order of salvation. That's our sermon series, salvation, uh, Saved to the Uttermost. And you'll note that conversion is the initial response of the regenerate, regenerate person, turning from sin, repentance, and turning to Christ in, in faith, uh, saving faith. So last week, we consider repentance, and today we're looking at that other part of conversion, these two things that are inseparable, even though we're dealing with them in two different sermons, repentance and faith. They are, as our confession says, twin graces. Remember, repentance implies faith, and true saving faith implies repentance unto life. So I've chosen... I had. I had trouble choosing one passage to focus on today, so I've chosen three. There are three short passages, and the first one is this, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. We've already appealed to this pas passage in this sermon series, and let me read it for us. It really helps us understand the meaning of faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Paul very clearly, in all of Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, including 8 and 9 that we just read, is, is declaring the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the mercy and grace of God in saving wretched sinners like you and me. And he gets to these latter verses in that larger pericope, and he says, he tells us that saving faith is a gift of God. It is by grace. Our confession of faith in chapter 14 defines saving faith like this. And you can turn to the back of your hymnal and find our confession printed there. If you choose and follow along with me, I'll be reading several excerpts from our confession today. But here's what our confession says about saving faith. The grace, or we could say the gift of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought 
by the ministry of the word, by which also, and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer, it is increased and strengthened. Now I want to pause, and I want to look at a very important related matter, not only here in chapter 14, but also chapter 10 of our confession, of our confession chapter 10 is on effectual calling. And I want to focus for just a moment on that little phrase that I just read, ordinarily that, that faith is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word. What is meant by ordinarily wrought? Very important. There are some elect persons that are incapable of hearing and understanding the gospel preached because of some natural incapacity, some, some natural physical issue. And our confession gives us two groups of people that fall into this category. The confession says that elect infants who die in infancy, and I would take the confession to mean those infants that die by miscarriage or stillbirth or at birth or those infants that die after birth, as well as those elect persons who are mentally incapable to understand the gospel and to respond in repentance and faith are nonetheless regenerated by the Holy Spirit and united to Christ in saving faith. And you can read about this specifically in our confession, chapter 10 and paragraph 3. Now, we do not believe, nor is the confession implying, that all infants who die in infancy are saved, that all persons who have some mental deficiency, some incapacity, are saved. What the confession says is that those persons in these two categories who are elect will be saved. And pastorally, this is of great comfort to parents who suffer miscarriages or stillbirths or the infant's death at birth or beyond birth in their earliest days. While we have no guarantees that all of our covenant children will be converted, we do have the promise, we do have the guarantee that all elect persons, even those who die in the womb or as infants or who are born or suffer some mental incapacities, if they are elect, they will be saved. That's what our confession means by that phrase, ordinarily wrought. And this, of course, is great encouragement to us as we consider our children. I wanted just to make that note 
It's a very important distinction that our confession has taught, and I believe that that teaching is consistent with the scriptures, though the scriptures do not give us much information about infants dying in infancy, for example. But the scripture does guarantee that God's sovereign choice of of election means that every elect person will be saved. Now, returning to Paul's teaching in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, as well as our confession, they both make clear that no one is saved by human effort. Faith to the saving of one's soul is based solely on the Holy Spirit enabling a sinner, regenerating them to respond to the gospel by turning to Christ in faith. Ephesians 2 also defines faith not only as a gift but a means or we may say an instrument. It says, by grace through faith you are saved. And it's interesting that Paul uses a very specific construction in the Greek that denotes faith as a means or faith as a tool of instrumentality. So Hoykema, for example, Dr. Hoykema makes the point that the New Testament never uses the expression on account of faith to describe the relationship between faith and salvation or faith and justification. In other words, nowhere in the New Testament do we find salvation or faith being described as you are saved or justified because you believe. What the Bible clearly shows and what is always expressed when faith is related to salvation or justification is that we are saved or justified out of or through or by means of faith. The difference could not be greater between I am saved because I believe or I am saved through the gift of faith as God's means to save me. Faith as a means can be illustrated in several ways. I often think of faith as a conduit through which I receive all the, the blessings of God in Christ Jesus. Another analogy that that I've used over the years is to think of faith as as an electrical cord. One end is hooked up to a lamp socket. The other end has a plug on it that you plug into the wall outlet. And if that plug is not plugged in, you can turn on that lamp socket as much as you want and the light bulb is not going to illuminate. But you plug that plug into the wall socket, the power it's not exactly in the wall. Our electrician, electrical engineers may get a hold of me here. But, but for this purpose, the power in the wall, the power in that socket flows through that cord and empowers that socket to empower that light bulb. When you turn it on, the room is illuminated. And to me, that's an understanding of faith. Faith being what... Uh, yeah. Plugging in to 
all the saving benefits that are available to me in receiving them through that, that conduit or through that cord. Our confession speaks of faith as an instrument of justification. More on that next week. But J.I. Packer probably has a definition or a description that really strikes me very, very hard on the heart in a good way. Packer says that, that he describes faith as the outstretched, empty hand which receives righteousness by receiving Christ. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. These words from Rock of Ages, more than any words outside of Scripture, impress upon me what it means to have faith. A filthy beggar lifting up empty hands in total dependence upon Christ for everything. Faith is a gift. Faith is a means. Faith, understood in this way, saving faith, is to the saving of one's soul. John Murray said, not even faith in Christ saves, but Christ saves through faith. Here's the good news. Saving faith may be weak or strong. It may be assailed and weakened, as our confession says. But if it is true, if it is true saving faith, it gets the victory. Why does true saving faith, even if it is small, get the victory? We believe to the saving of our souls not because we believe, not because we have walked an aisle, not because we have prayed that prayer. We are saved by the object of faith, Jesus working through the gift of faith as a means to save us. And saving faith, weak or small, even assailed and weakened, if it is true, gets the victory. That is good news for sinners saved by grace. Secondly, saving faith is a response to what the Spirit has already done in regeneration. So I've chosen another passage of Scripture here. Turn to John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. Here we understand very clearly the teaching that faith is not only a response, but it is, it is that, that regen, it's a response to regeneration, which means that regeneration precedes faith. 
John chapter 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So John tells us in verse 12 that receiving and believing results in becoming children of God. Now, some use verse 12 out of context. They disregard verse 13, just use verse 12. And they seek to prove what I have called an Arminian conception that faith precedes regeneration. And so how they interpret verse 12 wrongly is that a person receives and believes and then they become a child of God, i.e. they are regenerated. That's how they understand that. And they avoid looking at verse 13. But when you look at verse 13, and we must look at verse 13 and see verse 12 in light of verse 13, we, we find John teaching that, that becoming a child of God is not based on human lineage. And it's not based on a human decision. Becoming a child of God is not based on, I decided for Jesus. Behind and before any spiritual activity of man with regards to salvation, including faith, is a prior work of God in a sinner being born of God, born again, regenerated. John 1, 12 through 13 teaches regeneration precedes faith. And faith unto the saving of the soul is a response to God's prior work of that new birth. You may remember from last week, Williamson's conversion circle that we talked about. And his circle reflects conversion as a full orb transformation of the mind, of the affections, and of the will. The three constituent parts of being a person. And so to put it all together, a regenerate person responds in this way, that he or she is able to know their sin and know the remedy for that sin problem in the person and work of Jesus Christ. A regenerate person is able to come to the place of being broken and contrite over their sin, even hating their sin and feel drawn to Christ. Their affection turns from sin to Christ. And a regenerate person is able to turn from sin and turn to Christ in faith, trusting him alone for salvation. So having said all of that, just looking at this this response of faith to God's regenerative work, how then could Jess, the lady I spoke about at the very beginning, how could Jess, who thought she was a Christian, discover after seven years of being a pastor's wife that she was unconverted? 
And I believe the answer to that question lies in understanding faith a little bit deeper and seeing that there are three aspects of faith. And all three are necessary for saving faith to be true. First, saving faith is about having the right knowledge. It is knowing the right things, the essential truths of the gospel. Romans 10 and verse 14, we've appealed to this passage in our series already, but here's what Paul says. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? This text tells us that bright doctrine alone cannot save, but nor can we be saved without it. That we are to preach the gospel truths. Right knowledge is essential. Secondly, saving faith not only involves having the right doctrine, the right knowledge, but it actually includes assenting, that is, accepting that those doctrines are true, embracing them ourselves. Assenting to the gospel, however, does not in and of itself save. And how do we know that? Because the Bible tells us so. One example is in James chapter 2 and verse 19. This is when Jesus is dealing with the demon-possessed mean in Gadara. And one of the demons screams out, you believe, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And so here we find Jesus actually speaking with regards, or James actually speaking with regards to the demons having the right knowledge and actually assenting to that, that being true. They understood who Jesus was. In, in Matthew 8, that was the, the episode at, at Gadara where the demons scream out, what do you want with us, son of man? Have you come to torment us before the appointed time? Mere intellectual assent does not save. The demons have intellectual assent to one degree or another but nor can anyone be saved without it. And then thirdly, saving faith is complete trust. Our confession speaks of the essential elements of saving faith in this way in chapter 14 and paragraph 2, but the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. And here we see that resting upon Christ is is transferring our total trust and dependence onto him. Hukama says that, that trust is the crowning aspect of faith. So saving faith involves right doctrine. It involves assent. I accept that doctrine to be true. And it involves trusting Jesus. If you don't have all three, if you have two but not one, or one but not two, it is not true saving faith. You remain unconverted. So we may assume that the reason Jess realized she was unconverted is that one or two or all of these components of saving faith were missing. Now, let me give you an illustration. Some of you went through EE tra training with me several years ago. 
And one of the illustrations in EE to teach what it means to believe is the chair illustration. And so for the, those of you on this side of the sanctuary, you have two chairs up here. For those on this side of the sanctuary, we have two chairs up here as well. So please refer to, you, to your respective chairs as I describe this, this illustration. And if you feel like coming up and sitting in one, have at it. You won't bother me. So we can say that these chairs exist. We would all agree with that, that we would be able to express that knowledge. We'd be able to give certain, uh, say certain things about the chair, the color, the fabric, the, the structure. We could, we could see that they're really nice chairs. I think Bob Davis picked them out, so they're super nice chairs. And then we can even go as far as to say, I really... I look at those chairs, and they appear to be very sturdy, and I have, I have trust that if I actually got up and sat in one of those chairs that they would hold me up, we, we would not only say, yeah, I believe those chairs exist, and here are some things about them, but we would assent to, yeah, those, those chairs will fulfill what they were designed to do, to hold me up, to support me if I sit in it. But how would we know for sure that they would hold us up? It's that third element of trust. We would actually have to get up out of our seat and walk over there and sit in one of those chairs to trust it to actually hold us up. Now, if we're sitting in one of these chairs and we look at the other chair and we say that chair represents Jesus, then we would say, yep, I believe that chair exists. I believe that Jesus exists, that, that I, I have knowledge of what the Bible says about Jesus to one degree or another. And then thirdly, I'd be able to say that, yep, I assent to the fact that, that that chair or Jesus is who he says he is. I believe that he is the Son of God. I believe that he did die on the cross for my sins. I, I believe his blood was availed for me. We could say all kinds of things about Jesus, and we could even assent to it. But short of actually getting up and getting up out of our chair and actually sitting in Jesus' chair, trusting in Jesus, we have not trusted him. And so if we believe the right things about Jesus and if we assent that they are true and that's it, we've never trusted Jesus, then our faith is false. Our faith is mere intellectual assent. And even the demons have that. And sometimes what people do is that they, they have intellectual assent, but they do trust Jesus. The problem is they trust him for some things. I've got a money problem, and so I'll just, I'm still sitting in my chair, I'll just throw my wallet over there on Jesus and trust him for that. I've got a trip coming up. 
hopefully I won't set my car alarm off, but I will just take my keys and just throw them over there on Jesus' chair and say, hey, Jesus, I'm, I'm concerned about this trip. It's winter weather, and, and I trust you. If I had my iPhone up here, I'd take that and throw it in the chair. That's got my calendar on it. If I had my grandchildren up here, I'd take one of them and put them gently. Actually, my grandson would like to be thrown in, in the chair. Do you sit in your chair looking over there at Jesus' chair and on occasion you, you trust him for this or trust him for that? but you remain in your chair. Temporal faith won't get you to heaven. Intellectual assent will not get you to heaven. A person is saved because they not only have the right knowledge, they not only assent to that knowledge about Jesus is true, but they actually get up, get up out of their chair and put their whole weight on Jesus' chair. And what that means is that you don't do what Renee's grandmother did when she flew on an airplane, never putting her full weight in the chair on the airplane because she didn't trust it. Saving faith comes down to getting up and actually trusting Jesus. And nothing short of that will save. I'm unable to know exactly the, all the dynamics of, of Jess's story, but what I do know is that she never got up out of her chair to trust her whole life to Jesus. What about us? And then, the faith characterizes the Christian life. Earlier, Bill read from the account in Genesis 22 of Abraham's faith. This is what Hebrews 11:17 says about Genesis 22. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. By faith, Abraham lived. Romans 1, 16 through 17 is the passage I've chosen particularly for this point. For now I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now that term, righteous shall live by faith, is a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. Next week we'll look more at, at justification and the sole instrument of justification being faith. So God justifies us. He declares us righteous through faith, through that gift of faith, through that means of faith, through that faith that is to the saving of one's soul. But the text says the righteous 
shall live by faith. We see that not only are we declared righteous through faith, but it also characterizes our life from that point forward. We are to live day in and day out by faith. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are united to Christ in saving faith, and from that point forward, we live in the power of the life of Christ by faith. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Just turn there in your Bibles. I keep coming back to this prayer. We'll come back to it again in a under sanctification Paul prays for the Ephesians beginning with verse 14 for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I would submit to you that when we struggle in the Christian life, not if we struggle, but when we struggle in the Christian life, not if, but when we say, oh, I wish my life had more power, that the very same things that began the Christian life, repentance and faith, are the very same things that are to characterize the Christian life. If you want to have a powerful Christian life, do not go to the bookstore and buy 10 steps to powerful living. Let me tell you, there are shelves in Christian bookstores all around the world that are filled with Christian self-help teaching that do not mention sin and barely reference faith. It's all about what you can do. And yet the truth of the gospel is the Christian life, when it comes right down to it, if you've been saved by Jesus Christ unto the saving of your soul, that reality should percolate up the rest of your life. And it should be translated like this, being sensitive to sin, repenting of sin, and fleeing to Christ over and over and over again. And realizing when we're disobedient, when we're weak, when we're wayward, going not only to repentance but pleading with the Spirit through the gift of faith to empower us and strengthen us, to literally pour out the love of Christ into our hearts, to overflowing. That's what Paul is saying in this prayer. To fill us to overflowing, and that overflow is our obedience. That overflow is our ministry. That overflow is our love for God and our love for others. 
before we can truly love God, before we can truly love others, before we can truly minister for the sake of the kingdom and for God's glory, we have to repent and believe. We have to be filled to overflowing through faith the Holy Spirit. If there is a secret to the Christian life, and there isn't, the Bible is really clear, it is we repent and believe to get into heaven, and we repent and believe on our way. After seven years of being a pastor's wife, Jess realized she was unconverted. She had never lived by faith because she never began with true saving faith. She came to the place of wanting out. For six months, she plunged deeper and deeper into sin. And her goal was to make Joel, her husband, who was planning a new church in Baltimore, so miserable that he would leave and say, I'm done with you. She had one problem. <laughs> Joel continued to love her. And Joel continued to lovingly preach Christ to her. In the words of Jess, in January 2011, something changed. I know now what it was. I was converted. The Holy Spirit of God convicted me of my sin, assured me that Christ bore my sin's penalty on the cross and that he rose again from the dead. I repented of my rebellion and trusted Jesus Christ. The hopelessness I'd always felt was gone. I had an insatiable desire to be in the Word. Even better, the Word made sense to me. I had a new desire to serve others, share Christ with others, and serve the church, end quote. And Joel finally had a helpmate to join him in the ministry. True saving faith is a gift, not a product of our effort. It is a means through which we receive all the saving benefits of Christ. True saving faith is a response to what God has already done in regeneration. And true saving faith must have these three elements. Right knowledge, assent to the truth, and getting up out of my seat and sitting in Jesus' seat fully trusting and depending on him. Saving faith always results in a life of faith characterized by daily ongoing repentance and fleeing to Christ in faith. Faith to the saving of one's soul 
begins the Christian life and faith characterizes the life of the Christian. Think about these things. Let us pray. God our Father, we do come humbly before you thanking you for first thanking you for working in the life of Jess true story after years of faking being a Christian you radically transformed her and enabled her to respond and you saved her Father Thank you for how you've done that in so many of our lives here. Thank you for how you will do that in the unconverted that are elect throughout the ages until the Lord Jesus comes again. Thank you for the gift of faith. Faith to the saving of one's soul. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would